Section 13 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Alexander, Chapters 42-52. to 52. And it is astonishing that he had time to write so many letters for his friends. For instance, he wrote one giving orders to seek out a slave of Seleucus, who had run away into Cilicia, and one in commendation of Pusitus for arresting Nicon, a servant of Craterus, and one to Megabizus, about an attendant who had taken refuge in a sanctuary, bidding him, if possible, entice the slave outside the sanctuary, and then arrest him, but not to lay hands upon him in the sanctuary. It is said, too, that at first, when he was trying capital cases, he would put his hand over one of his ears while the accuser was speaking, that he might keep it free and unprejudiced for the accused. But afterwards the multitude of accusations which he heard rendered him harsh, and led him to believe the false because so many were true. And particularly when he was maligned, he lost discretion, and was cruel and inexorable, since he loved his reputation more than his life or his kingdom. Now, however, he marched out against Darius, footnote, in the spring of 330 BC, end footnote, expecting to fight another battle. But when he heard that Darius had been seized by Bessus, he sent his Thessalians home, after distributing among them a largesse of 2,000 talents over and above their pay. In consequence of the pursuit of Darius, which was long and arduous, for in eleven days he rode 3,300 furlongs, most of his horsemen gave out, and chiefly for lack of water. At this point some Macedonians met him who were carrying water from the river in skins upon their mules, and when they beheld Alexander, it being now midday, in a wretched plight from thirst, they quickly filled a helmet and brought it to him. To his inquiry for whom they were carrying the water, they replied, For our own sons, but if thou livest, we can get other sons even if we lose these. On hearing this, he took the helmet into his hands. But when he looked around and saw the horsemen about him, all stretching out their heads and gazing at the water, he handed it back without drinking any, but with praises for the men who had brought it. For, said he, if I should drink of it alone, these horsemen of mine will be out of heart. But when they beheld his self-control and loftiness of spirit, they shouted out to him to lead them forward boldly and began to goad their horses on, declaring that they would not regard themselves as weary or thirsty or as mortals at all, so long as they had such a king. So then, all were alike, ready and willing, but only sixty, they say, were with Alexander when he burst into the camp of the enemy. There, indeed, they rode over much gold and silver that was thrown away, passed by many wagons full of women and children which were coursing hither and thither without their drivers, and pursued those who were foremost in flight, thinking that Darius was among them. But at last they found him lying in a wagon, his body all full of javelins at the point of death. Nevertheless, he asked for something to drink, and when he had drunk some cold water, which Polystratus gave him, he said to him, My man, this is the extremity of all my ill fortune, that I receive good at thy hands, and am not able to return it. But Alexander will requite thee for thy good offices, and the gods will reward Alexander for his kindness to my mother, wife, and children. To him, through thee, I give this right hand. With these words he took the hand of Polystratus, and then expired. When Alexander came up, 
he was manifestly distressed by what had happened, and unfastening his own cloak threw it upon the body and covered it, and when at a later time he found Bessus, he had him rent asunder. Footnote, in the spring of 329 BC, end footnote. Two straight trees were bent together and a part of his body fastened to each. Then when each was released and sprang vigorously back, the part of the body that was attached to it followed after. Now, however, he sent the body of Darius, laid out in royal state, to his mother. Footnote. Quote, to Persepolis, with orders that it should be buried in the royal sepulchre. End quote. Arian. End footnote. And admitted his brother, Exathres, into the number of his companions. He himself, however, with the flower of his army, marched into Hyrcania, where he saw a gulf of the open sea which appeared to be as large as the Euxine, but was sweeter than the Mediterranean. He could get no clear information about it, but conjectured that in all probability it was a stagnant overflow from the palace Myotis, and yet naturalists were well aware of the truth, and many years before Alexander's expedition they had set forth that this was the most northerly of four gulfs which stretched inland from the outer sea, and was called indifferently the Hyrcanian or Caspian Sea. Here some barbarians unexpectedly fell in with those who were leading Alexander's horse, Bucephalus, and captured him. Alexander was angry beyond measure, and sent a herald threatening to put them all to the sword, together with their wives and children, if they did not send him back his horse. But when they came with the horse, and also put their cities into his hands, he treated them all kindly and gave a ransom for his horse to those who had captured him. From thence he marched into Parthia, footnote, in the early autumn of 330 BC, end footnote, where, during a respite from fighting, he first put on the barbaric dress, either from a desire to adapt himself to the native customs, believing that community of race and custom goes far towards softening the hearts of men, or else this was an attempt to introduce the abasance among the Macedonians. Footnote, prostration on the ground before a great personage, a peculiarly Persian custom, end footnote, accustoming them little by little to put up with changes and alterations in his mode of life. However, he did not adopt the famous Midian fashion of dress, which was altogether barbaric and strange, nor did he assume trousers, or sleeved vest, or tiara, but carefully devised a fashion which was midway between the Persian and the Median, more modest than the one, and more stately than the other. At first he wore this only in intercourse with the barbarians, and with his companions at home, then people generally saw him riding forth or giving audience in this attire. The sight was offensive to the Macedonians, but they admired his other high qualities, and thought they ought to yield to him in some things which made for his pleasure or his fame. For, in addition to all his other hardships, he had recently been shot by an arrow in the leg below the knee, so that splinters of the larger bone came out, and at another time he was smitten in the neck of the stone so severely that his eyesight was clouded and remained so for some time. Nevertheless, he did not cease exposing himself to dangers without stint, nay, he actually crossed the river Oryxartes, which he himself supposed to be the Tanais, put the Scythians to rout, and pursued them for a hundred furlongs, although he was suffering all the while from a diarrhoea. Here the queen of the Amazons came to see him, as most writers say, among whom are Clitarchus, Polycletus, Onesicritus, Antigenes, and Ister, but Aristobulus, Cares the royal usher, Ptolemy, Anticlides, Philo the Theban, and Philippa Theangela, besides Hecateus of Eritrea, Philip the Chalcidian, and Durus of Samos, say that this is a fiction, and it would seem that Alexander's testimony is in favour of their statement. For in a letter to Antipater, which gives all the details minutely, he says, 
that the Scythian king offered him his daughter in marriage, but he makes no mention of the Amazon. And the story is told that many years afterwards, Onesicritus was reading aloud to Lysimachus, who was now king, the fourth book of his history in which was the tale of the Amazon, at which Lysimachus smiled gently and said, And where was I all this time? However, our belief or disbelief of this story will neither increase nor diminish our admiration for Alexander. Fearing that his Macedonians might tire of the rest of his expedition, he left the greater part of them in quarters, and while he had the best of them with him in Hyrcania, 20,000 foot and 3,000 horse, he addressed them, saying that at present they were seen by the barbarians as in a dream, but that if they should merely throw Asia into confusion and then leave it, they would be attacked by them as if they were women. However, he said, he allowed those who wished it to go away, calling them to witness that while he was winning the inhabited world for the Macedonians, he had been left behind with his friends and those who were willing to continue the expedition. This is almost word for word what he wrote in his letter to Antipater, and he adds that after he had thus spoken, all his hearers cried out to him to lead them to whatever part of the world he wished. After these had met his test of their loyalty, it was no longer a hard matter for the main body to be led along too. Nay, they readily followed after. Under these circumstances too, he adapted his own mode of life still more to the customs of the country, and tried to bring these into closer agreement with Macedonian customs, thinking that by a mixture and community of practice which produced goodwill, rather than by force, his authority would be kept secure while he was away. For this reason, too, he chose out 30,000 boys and gave orders that they should learn the Greek language and be trained to use Macedonian weapons, appointing many instructors for this work. His marriage to Roxana, whom he saw in her youthful beauty taking part in a dance at a banquet, was a love affair, and yet it was thought to harmonise well with the matters which he had in hand. For the barbarians were encouraged by the partnership into which the marriage brought them, and they were beyond measure fond of Alexander because, most temperate of all men that he was in these matters, he would not consent to approach even the only woman who ever mastered his affections without the sanction of law. Moreover, when he saw that amongst his chiefest friends, Hephaestion approved his course and joined him in changing his mode of life while Craterus clung fast to his native ways, he employed the former in his business with the barbarians, the latter in that with the Greeks and Macedonians. And in general, he showed most affection for Hephaestion, but most esteem for Craterus, thinking and constantly saying that Hephaestion was a friend of Alexander, but Craterus a friend of the king. For this reason, too, the men cherished a secret grudge against one another, and often came into open collision, and once on the Indian expedition, they actually drew their swords and closed with one another, and as the friends of each were coming to his aid, Alexander rode up and abused Hephaestion publicly, calling him a fool and a madman, for not knowing that without Alexander's favour he was nothing. And in private he also sharply reproved Craterus, then he brought them together, and reconciled them, taking an oath by Ammon and the rest of the gods, that he loved them most of all men, but that if he heard of their quarrelling again, he would kill them both, or at least the one who began the quarrel. Wherefore, after this, they neither did nor said anything to harm one another, not even in jest. Now, Philotas, the son of Parmenio, had a high position among the Macedonians, for he was held to be valiant and able to endure hardship. And, after Alexander himself, no one was so fond of giving and so fond of his comrades. At any rate, we are told that when one of his intimates asked him for some money, he ordered his steward to give it to him. And when the steward said he had none to give, "'What meanest thou?' cried Philotas. "'Hast thou not even plate or clothing?' However, he displayed a pride of spirit, an abundance of wealth, 
and a care of the person and mode of life which were too offensive for a private man, and at this time particularly his imitation of majesty and loftiness was not successful at all, but clumsy, spurious and devoid of grace, so that he incurred suspicion and envy, and even Parmenio once said to him, My son, pray be less of a personage. Moreover, for a very long time, accusations against him had been brought to Alexander himself, for when Darius had been defeated in Cilicia, and the wealth of Damascus was taken, among the many prisoners brought into the camp there was found a young woman, born in Pydna, and comely to look upon. Her name was Antigone. This woman Philotas got, and as a young man will often talk freely in vaunting, and martial strained his mistress and in his cups, he used to tell her that the greatest achievements were performed by himself and his father, and would call Alexander a stripling, who through their efforts enjoyed the title of ruler. These words the woman would report to one of her acquaintances, and he, as was natural, to somebody else, until the story came round to Craterus, who took the girl and brought her secretly to Alexander. He, on hearing her story, ordered her to continue her meetings with Philotas, and to come and report to him whatever she learned from her lover. Now Philotas was ignorant of the plot thus laid against him, and in his frequent interviews with Antigone would utter many angry and boastful speeches, and many improper words against the king. But Alexander, although strong testimony against Philotas came to his ears, endured in silence and restrained himself, either because he had confidence in Parmenio's goodwill towards him, or because he feared the reputation and power of father and son. Meanwhile, however, a Macedonian named Limnus, from Calestra, conspired against Alexander's life, footnote, in the late autumn of 330 BC, end footnote, and invited Nicomachus, one of the young men whose lover he was, to take part with him in the undertaking. Nicomachus would not accept the invitation, but told his brother Cabalinus of the attempt, and he, going to Philotas, ordered him to conduct them into the presence of Alexander, on the ground that there were matters of great importance about which they must see him. But Philotas, for whatever reason, and the reason is not known, would not conduct them in, alleging that the king was engaged on other matters of more importance, and he refused their request twice. They now became suspicious of Philotas, and applied to someone else by whom they were brought before Alexander. In the first place they told him about the plot of Limnus, and then threw out veiled insinuations against Philotas, on the ground that he had neglected their petitions on two occasions. This greatly incensed Alexander, and when he found that Limnus had defended himself against arrest, and had therefore been killed by the man sent to fetch him, he was still more disturbed in mind, thinking that the proof of the plot had escaped him. And since he felt bitter towards Philotas, he drew to himself those who had long hated the man, and they now said openly that the king took things too easily when he supposed that Limnus, a man of Calestra, had set his hand to do a deed of so great daring on his own account. Nay, they said, he was only an assistant, or rather an instrument sent forth by a higher power, and inquiry into the plot should be made in those quarters where there was most interest in having it concealed. After the king had once given ear to such speeches and suspicions, the enemies of Philotas brought up countless accusations against him. Consequently, he was arrested and put to the question, the companions of the king standing by at the torture, while Alexander himself listened behind a stretch of tapestry. Here, as we are told, on hearing Philotas beset her face John with abject and pitiful cries and supplications, he said, So faint-hearted as thou art, Philotas, and so unmanly, couldst thou have set hand to so great an undertaking? After Philotas had been put to death, Alexander sent at once into Media, and dispatched Parmenio also, a man whose achievements with Philip had been many, 
and who was the only one of Alexander's older friends, or the principal one, to urge his crossing into Asia, and who, of the three sons that were his, had seen two killed on the expedition before this, and was now put to death along with the third. These actions made Alexander an object of fear to many of his friends, and particularly to Antipater, who sent secretly to the Aetolians, and entered into an alliance with them. For the Aetolians also were in fear of Alexander, because they had destroyed the city of Oneidae, and because Alexander, on learning of it, had said that it would not be the sons of the Onidae, but he himself who had punished the Aetolians. Not long afterwards came the affair of Cletus, footnote, during the campaign of 328 BC, at Samarkand in Sogdiana, end footnote, which those who simply learn the immediate circumstances will think more savage than that of Philotas. If we take into consideration, however, alike the cause and the time, we find that it did not happen of set purpose, but through some misfortune of the king, whose anger and intoxication furnished occasion for the evil genius of Cletus. It happened on this wise. Some people came, bringing Greek fruit to the king from the seaboard. He admired its perfection and beauty, and called Cletus, wishing to show it to him and share it with him. It chanced that Cletus was sacrificing, but he gave up the sacrifice and came and three of the sheep on which libations had already been poured came following after him. When the king learned of this circumstance, he imparted it to his soothsayers Aristander and Cleomantis the Lacedaemonian. Then on their telling him that the omen was bad, he ordered them to sacrifice in all haste for the safety of Cletus, for he himself, two days before this, had seen a strange vision in his sleep. He thought he saw Cletus, sitting with the sons of Parmenio in black robes, and all were dead. However, Cletus did not finish his sacrifice, but came at once to the supper of the king, who had sacrificed to the Dioscuri. After boisterous drinking was under way, verses were sung, which had been composed by a certain Pranicus, or as some say, Pierio, to shame and ridicule the generals, who had lately been defeated by the barbarians. The older guests were annoyed at this, and railed at both the poet and the singer, but Alexander and those about him listened with delight and bade the singer go on. Then Cletus, who was already drunk, and naturally of a harsh temper and willful, was more than ever vexed, and insisted that it was not well done, when among barbarians and enemies to insult Macedonians who were far better men than those who laughed at them, even though they had met with misfortune. And when Alexander declared that Cletus was pleading his own cause, when he gave Caurus the name of misfortune, Cletus sprang to his feet and said, It was this cowardice of mine, however, that saved thy life, God-born as thou art, when thou wast already turning thy back upon the spear of Spithridates. And it is by the blood of Macedonians, and by these wounds, that thou art become so great as to disown Philip and make thyself son to Ammon. Thoroughly incensed then, Alexander said, Base fellow, dost thou think to speak thus of me at all times, and to raise faction among Macedonians with impunity? Nay, said Cletus, not even now do we enjoy impunity, since such are the rewards we get for our toils, and we pronounce those happy who are already dead, and did not live to see us Macedonians, thrashed with Median rods, or begging Persians in order to get an audience with our king. So spoke Cletus in all boldness, and those about Alexander sprang up to confront him and reviled him, while the elder men tried to quell the tumult. Then Alexander, turning to Xenodocus of Cardia and Artemius of Colophon, said, Do not the Greeks appear to you to walk about among Macedonians like demigods among wild beasts? Cletus, however, would not yield, but called on Alexander to speak out freely what he wished to say, or else not to invite to supper men who were free and spoke their minds, but to live with barbarians and slaves who would do obeisance to his white tunic and Persian girdle. 
Then Alexander, no longer able to restrain his anger, threw one of the apples that lay on the table at Cletus and hit him, and began looking about for his sword. But one of his bodyguards, Aristophanes, conveyed it away before he could lay hands on it, and the rest surrounded him and begged him to desist, whereupon he sprang to his feet and called out in Macedonian speech a summons to his corps of guards, and this was a sign of great disturbance, and ordered the trumpeter to sound and smote him with his fist because he hesitated and was unwilling to do so. This man, then, was afterwards held in high esteem on the ground that it was due to him more than to anyone else that the camp was not thrown into commotion. But Cletus would not give in, and with much ado his friends pushed him out of the banquet hall. He tried to come in again, however, by another door, very boldly and contemptuously reciting these iambics from the Andromache of Euripides. Alas, in Hellas, what an evil government! And so at last Alexander seized a spear from one of his guards, met Cletus as he was drawing aside the curtain before the door, and ran him through. No sooner had Cletus fallen with a roar and a groan, and the king's anger departed from him, and when he was come to himself and beheld his friend standing speechless, he drew the spear from the dead body, and would have dashed it into his own throat, had not his bodyguards prevented this by seizing his hands and carrying him by force to his chamber. Here he spent the night, and the following day in bitter lamentations, and at last lay speechless, worn out with his cries and wailing, heaving deep groans. Then his friends, alarmed at his silence, forced their way in. To what the others said, he would pay no attention. But when Aristander the seer reminded him of the vision he had seen concerning Cletus, and of the omen, assuring him that all this had long ago been decreed by fate, he seemed to be less obdurate. Therefore they brought in to him Callisthenes the philosopher, who was a relative of Aristotle, and Anaxantus of Abdera. Of these, Callisthenes tried by considerate and gentle methods to alleviate the king's suffering, employing insinuation and circumlocution so as to avoid giving pain. But Anaxarchus, who had always taken a path of his own in philosophy, and had acquired a reputation for despising and slighting his associates, shouted out as soon as he came in, Here is Alexander, to whom the whole world is now looking, but he lies on the floor, weeping like a slave, in fear of the law and the censure of men, unto whom he himself should be a law and a measure of justice, since he has conquered the right to rule and mastery, instead of submitting like a slave to the mastery of a vain opinion. Knowest thou not, said he, that Zeus has justice and law seated beside him, in order that everything that is done by the master of the world may be lawful and just? By using some such arguments as these, Anaxarchus succeeded in lightening the suffering of the king. It is true, but rendered his disposition in many ways more vainglorious and lawless. He also made himself wonderfully liked by the king, and brought the intercourse of Callisthenes with him, which had always been unpleasant because of the man's austerity, into additional disfavour. It is said that once at supper the conversation turned upon seasons and weather, and that Callisthenes, who held with those who maintain that it is more cold and wintry there than in Greece, was stoutly opposed by Anaxarchus, whereupon he said, You surely must admit that it is colder here than there, for there you used to go about in winter in a cloak merely, but here you recline at table with three rugs thrown over you. Of course, this also added to the irritation of Anaxarchus. End of section 13